need your spirit to bring more of our lives under the banner of your authority. Would you move us in that way? Where we are living for ourselves, for others, or for lesser things. Bring us under the banner of your authority. You also tell us in your word to pray for those who are in uh, governmental and social authority over us. And so we want to do that this morning. As we think of you, our ultimate king, we want to pray for our government leaders, for our president and, and Congress and Supreme Court, for Governor Brown, for Mayor Calloway in Hillsborough and our city council. So many of these people who make decisions at the national, state, and local levels that affect the world in which we live, that affect the lives of millions of people, and ultimately create a safe haven for us to gather and worship in the gospel. And so we pray for their effectiveness as government leaders. So often we can read our news media and be discouraged and disgusted with what is happening in politics. But Father, as your people, we want to pray that you would work through our political leaders, giving them wisdom, leading them to govern well, and ultimately creating a society of stability that defends the defenseless and creates an opportunity for the gospel. We thank you for the nation in which we live, and we pray for its success, and through it for the spread of the success of the gospel. Jesus, we also come to you as our shepherd. Uh, what a tender image of a shepherd caring for a flock of sheep. And you say, we are your sheep. You are our shepherd caring for our souls, feeding us, nurturing us. God, many of us in this room and this morning are in need of a very powerful touch of nurture from you. And God, whatever that looks like, I don't know you do. And so I pray that you would provide it, that you would shepherd our souls. We pray for uh, the widows in our congregation. I thank you for Anne being here. We grieve the loss of our brother Brian. We pray for your comfort. Uh, we think of Phil who recently passed away. We pray for Lita. We pray for other uh, widows and, and, and those who have lost loved ones and, and other forms of loss, Father, that have weighed down so many hearts that have walked in this room this morning. God, be the shepherd of our souls this morning. I don't even know what we need. I just know we need you. And so we pray that you would provide and you would feed us. And lastly, Jesus, and certainly not least, you acknowledge that you are our Savior. I pray that you would open up our eyes, as, as we have just sung, to see you, to, to grant to those to whom you are drawing to yourself this morning, uh, perhaps people that are joining us here for the first time, perhaps people that have not been in church much, if at all, Father, would you reveal yourself to them as Savior, the one who came to die and to rise again so that they, as well as we, might have life. You have done that for us and for your glory and our eternal good. So Jesus, I pray that you would lead us to encounter you as the Savior that we need for our sin. For those of us that embrace you as Savior, Father, lead us to repent more and depend on your cleansing work. And Father, for those in this room who may not have a personal relationship with you, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them before this day is done as Savior and Lord. Grant them the gift of faith and repentance that they may come to know you as King, as Shepherd, as Savior and find eternal life in you for their glory, for, your, uh, for their good, for your glory, for our good, for your eternal glory. Jesus, as your people, we pray these things in your matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much. You may have a seat. And thank you, team, for leading us um, really just 
gives me chills to hear the voices of the congregation mingled and singing God's praise. That's what we are all about. And just before we dive into scripture, I got to give a personal um, commentary on what you saw a little bit earlier. I'm so proud of all of the people who work with our kids in this church, uh, leading. And you don't, if you don't drop your kids off back in our children's wing, you don't see them. Uh, that's by design because we like that place to be safe. So if you're not supposed to be back there, we don't want you back there. Uh, <laughs> but what that means is you don't often see what's happening over there. Most of our kids' wing is right over here to my left, to your right. And, and every Sunday, faithful people are ministering the Word of God. I tell you what, if your kids attend this Sunday school program here regularly, they will probably end up in three years knowing more about the Bible than you do. And that's a good thing, amen? That is, you can applaud, please. Um, because that doesn't just happen. That doesn't just happen. Um, Beth has provided some great leadership, but I'll tell you, it's not just all Beth either, as much as I love that lady. It is about the people in our church who step up and say, I'm going to take uh, often one Sunday a month and not be in here because I'm going to be back there ministering the word of God. I love you for doing that. We need some more of you to do that. And I'm praying that God will give some of you the vision to be part of that as we start a whole new three-year cycle of teaching kids from beginning to end who Jesus is in scripture. And that's what we do in here on Sunday mornings. That's what we are going to do right now this morning. And I want to start by asking a question. And um, it's, a, it's a reflection question. It's not really rhetorical, although I'm not really looking for a verbal answer. It's one just to make you think. And the question is simply this. Um, what is God like? What do you think? What's the first one or two things, maybe, that pops into your mind? 20th century uh, Christian author A.W. Tozer, I believe this comes from his kind of modern classic work, Knowledge of the Holy, if my memory serves right. He said at one point, quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, unquote. Now, if you read that quote in context, he goes on to explain that um, no society in his judgment really ever rises above its religion, and no religion ever rises above its view of, of God, of, of the ultimate. And so, at least in that sense, he is saying what we think about God is the most important, that is the most defining thing about us. We will never rise above our view of God, or to put it differently, our view of God shapes our life now and our destiny for all eternity, making this a pretty important question. So, what is God like? In our modern way of life, where we're encouraged to move constantly, to justify our existence through activity every moment of every day, to reflect little and to orient everything around our own personal dreams, this is not a question that, that we are encouraged to reflect on very much. But in times of disappointment, pain, grief, even modern American people find ourselves, we find this question sort of looming. I mean, I mean pain does that. It, it has a um, wonderfully clarifying effect on a person's life. That was certainly the experience of the ancient Israelites as the book of Exodus opens. Uh, we find them in pain. They are toiling under a heavy burden of slavery, intentional abuse, and mistreatment. And they begin to cry out to God with a fresh urgency that, that hadn't really characterized their life for generations before that. 
And today we're going to start a new series through this book of the Bible. One of the Bible's most foundational books, arguably the most foundational book in the entire Bible. The Bible's second book, the book of Exodus. Now that's a big claim, I understand that. Um, I think the Bible backs it up. I'd put it this way. You cannot understand the Bible or Christianity apart from understanding the message of the book of Exodus. That's how important this book is and why I'm so excited to begin walking through it together over the next couple of months. This is a book of God revealing himself to his people, showing them, and and therefore us, who he really is, and what he is doing. And Exodus ultimately tells us that responding to who God is as he has revealed himself is the doorway to life. And it's the only doorway. Responding to God as he has revealed himself is the doorway to life. That's, that's what I hope to help us see from the pages of the Bible this morning by way of introduction and then really for the next number of weeks together. We're going to look at the first half of the book of Exodus. There's 40 chapters. We're going to take the first 20 between now and Christmas. So about two chapters a week. We're going to be moving through this book, but we're going to kind of catch the sweep of the flow. And then we'll pick up the second half later in the winter after the new year. This morning what we're going to do is kind of use chapters 1 and 2 as as sort of a launching point, a springboard to introduce the entire book. And so, as is often the case, if you've been around Harvest for a while, you know we do this at the beginning of a series. We're going to introduce the whole series, so this morning will be a little bit heavy on information. I'm going to try to paint some big picture categories just to kind of get them clear in our minds. The goal isn't to fully process them yet. We'll be doing that together over the next several weeks as the story of Exodus unfolds. But we want to use these first couple chapters to just really introduce the entire book to get our minds around what God is doing. And what we're going to see this morning really is two things. We have two main points. First of all, in Exodus, God reveals himself. He shows us who he is. And secondly, he reveals what he's doing in redemptive history. So we're going to see this morning four things that God reveals about himself. There's more than that in Exodus, but for our time and our purposes this morning, we've drawn out, I think, the four critical things that God reveals about who he is. And then secondly, we're going to see three important things about what he is doing in the story of salvation. So if you're in the book of Exodus, I want to encourage you to look at chapter 1, starting right away in verse 1. And we're going to launch into seeing Exodus as a story that reveals God to us. Fortunately, Exodus is an easy book to find even if you're not familiar with the Bible. Just start at the beginning and turn right for 20 or 30 or however many pages or so until you see Exodus right on the top of the page, second book in the Bible. Um, The setting begins in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So the Bible's assuming we know who that is because we've just read the book of Genesis. Each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and now we get the list of the 12 sons of Jacob, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in that generation also died. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, this is all by way of recap. This is summarizing the last 20 or so chapters of the book of Genesis where you get that story in all of its full detail. Picking up from where Genesis left off, God promised Abraham 400 years or so before the events of Exodus, maybe a little longer than that, that he would bless 
uh, the world through his seed, through Abraham's descendants. God was going to send a person, a descendant of Abraham, to bring a blessing to the entire world. That's the backdrop of Exodus. Now, Abraham's grandson Jacob and his 12 sons moved to Egypt to avoid starving to death during a famine, a situation that, that God brought about by providentially elevating Jacob's son Joseph to a position of power in Egypt, which allowed the, um, the family of, of Jacob to move down there and to stay there for a while. All of that which God uh, providentially uh, orchestrated to protect his people. Now, verses 6 and 7 that we just read kind of fast forward. Now, beyond the deaths of that generation, for 400 years, multiple generations of Israelites have been born. The Israelites have prospered and thrived. That sounds great. Awesome. This is nirvana, right? This is utopia, right? Not so fast. We pick up the story in verse 8, the passage Jordan read for us earlier. There arose a new king in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. That literally means let us outfox them. Let's outsmart them. Let's go get these guys. And we're going to do it by um, you know, making them essentially our slaves. Lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. You see, anti-immigrant sentiment sets into the hearts of the Egyptians and it makes them begin oppressing and seeking to control the Israelites out of fear because that's what racism and anti-immigrant sentiment do to people. They stoke fear and they make us see people in terms of how they look and how they smell and how they sound and how different it is and we start worrying about them. And so we start antagonizing them because we feel antagonized by them whether they've done anything or not. But as the story goes on, the harder they seek to be shrewd with the Israelites and outfox them, the more the Israelites grow. In verse um, 12, we see that. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Now, here's what I want to draw our attention to. This should not be mistaken for prosperity. I mean, I, I probably didn't say that right, because at one level it is prosperity, but at another level it's not. Like, the lives of the Israelites at this point are not pleasant and good. Yes, God is blessing them, but they're not happy. They're not having a good time. They're slaves, for crying out loud. And the nature of that slavery is a particularly pernicious one. They were oppressed, verse 12 says. That word was not invented by modern 21st century politically correct progressives. It's right here in the Bible. They were oppressed, actively put down. That was the idea. You look at more of the language. They were treated, uh, verses 12 and 13, they were treated ruthlessly. That's a word that has the idea of like they were, they were willfully exposed to harm. Like we're not just going to work these people until they sweat and they're tired. We're going to work them in a way that like they're going to, you know, they're going to get their arms and their fingers crushed under heavy loads and that might deform them for the rest of their lives and we don't care. Like, we are willfully exposing them to harm, and we're perfectly fine with that. We're not just making them work hard. We're trying to hurt these people, and we're succeeding. They were beaten, they were maimed, and ultimately, verse 13 describes their life as bitter. Their life is bitter. That's the setting in which Exodus opens. God is blessing. His people are suffering. What in the world is going on here? You see, already God has started to reveal to us some things about himself. I mentioned we're going to see four things about God this morning. Two of them come from our passage here. 
Two of them, I'm going to cheat and skip ahead a little bit. The first thing that we see is that God reveals himself as someone who is in control. Whether I see that or not, whether I feel that or not, whether he's doing what I think he should do the way I think he should do it or not, he is in control. We see that all over these introductory verses. Uh, Verse 7. We read it, the, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In the context, you're to interpret that as the blessing of God to be with his people, the promise to Abraham to multiply them more than the stars of the heavens. That's what God had promised Abraham clear back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. Now we see it happening. God is doing his thing. And as we just mentioned, verse 12 a moment ago, even the active um, oppression of the Egyptians, which came later, it didn't really matter. The more they tried, the more they found themselves outfoxed. The more they tried to outfox the Israelites, the more they found themselves outfoxed. The Israelites keep growing despite their attempt to thin the herd as much as they could. What's the point? God is in control, even though their suffering was real. By the way, Their suffering was real. There is nothing in the Bible that indicates that the Israelites had suffered under the Egyptians because of anything that they did wrong. Nowhere does it say in here that they were just stupid, selfish, godless people and so God was punishing them with slavery. They're just in slavery. Like It it wasn't their fault. They're just living life and multiplying and suddenly they get hammered for it. They agonized under the yoke of their Egyptian masters even 400 years after God had brought them to Egypt to providentially protect them and save them. So what is going on? Where was God? Well, he's there. The text of the Bible tells us he he was there. He, He wasn't removing them from suffering or removing suffering from them. Rather, he was preserving them through it with full intention to keep his promise. Exodus shows us that God is in control and he's going somewhere with all this. Even when it seems like chaos reigns and evil is winning, do you ever feel that way about the world you live in, friends? Do you ever look around and get discouraged about chaos reigning and evil winning? There's been so many reverberations within conservative evangelical churches in our country over the last couple of decades about where our culture is going. By the way, that was true in past cultures too, but it doesn't seem that way to us. Where is the world going? And we don't like the trajectory and we worry about it. And and not without reason. Some awful things are happening in the world we live in. The trajectory is not good. The Bible tells us the prince of this world is not a friend. But where's God in that? Exodus helps us see he's right there. He is right there. Like when you're in the midst of of that feeling of life being out of control, it can seem like there's no hope for a better future. When you're in that very moment, one great question to ask is the question we started with this morning. Who is God? What's he like? What do I believe God is like? Is he absent? He's not even there. Maybe there isn't a God after all. Is he present, but maybe too small and impotent to do anything to fix this? Or he's powerful enough to fix it, but he's clearly not doing it, so he obviously just doesn't care about all the suffering going on around us, so maybe I can't trust him after all? You see, here's the thing. When God gets smaller in our eyes, everything else gets bigger. When God gets smaller in our eyes, everything else gets bigger. 
and then it gets overwhelming and we worry because we feel like the world is out of control. Exodus is showing us God is still big. See him that way. It'll put everything else in perspective. God never explains to the Israelites why they're suffering. He never explains it. He doesn't take the big question away. Instead, he tells them, as one Bible scholar put it in summarizing the message of these first couple of chapters, everything is all right. Everything is planned. And it will all be well. End quote. So one Old Testament scholar summarized the message of these first two chapters. God's message to his people, everything is all right, everything is planned, and everything will be well. Exodus is a call for his people to trust him, to sustain them through suffering all the way to our eternal home. By the way, that's a message the rest of the Bible picks up and continues to develop, and it starts right here in these pages. So he reveals himself as in control. Secondly, he reveals himself as the sovereign king above all. Closely related, not quite the same thing. He reveals himself as the sovereign king above all. In verses 15 to 22, we heard earlier the story read of the attempt of the Pharaoh to, um, I'm going to outshrewd the Israelites. I got outshrewded. That didn't work, so I'm going to have to take matters into my own hand. And so he issues this edict to massacre the male Hebrew babies. Over time, we're just going to, it's, it's like male genocide. It's gender genocide. We're just going to wipe out and massacre these children. And then through the faithful, courageous acts of these Hebrew midwives, two of whom are actually named in the text because they're the heroes. By the way, the Pharaoh is never named. Interesting. He's just a nameless face because of the function that he serves in the story. He represents... Well, we'll get to that in a second. Through the actions of these courageous Hebrew midwives who feared God rather than men, God saves a number of these babies. Some of them, doubtless, were actually killed. Now, What's the point of relating that story at the beginning? Well, in part, it sets up chapter 2, which is the birth of Moses, who's a central human figure in Exodus. We'll get to him in a minute, but it's more than that. It's more than that. What it's also setting up is the cosmic conflict between God and Satan, who in Exodus is depicted by Pharaoh. You see, from the opening pages of this book, there's an epic confrontation between the Pharaoh who was considered a god and Yahweh, the god of the universe who reveals himself by name in this book. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Pharaoh repeatedly sneers through the first third of this book. And in response, God demands unconditional deference from Pharaoh. There is no negotiation. There is no meeting of the minds because you don't negotiate with a God and both guys think they're God. The first third of the book of Exodus is about who's right. It turns out that God is right. And this matters. <laughs> who's the king matters. Today we find ourselves in the midst of a follow-your-heart, chase-your-own-dreams world that often leaves people empty and in midlife crisis. A phrase I don't even think existed until like the last 100 or 150 years. But we are the society that has invented it. Or maybe it's an early or late life crisis. All because things either didn't pan out the way that we hoped when we built our dreams on life going this way and, and serving these masters and achieving these goals and following these dreams and only to find out that they didn't pan out. Or maybe 
maybe even worse, they did pan out. We got exactly what we wanted, and we're still not satisfied. We got the family, we got the job, we got the money, we got the whatever it is we wanted to get. And you wake up one day realizing, I'm still empty inside. And when you have been leaning on something your entire life and you find out it's hollow and it starts to crack, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. A midlife crisis, regardless of when it happens in your life, is a real thing. It is an existential implosion of a person's identity because we've built it on the wrong foundation. Finding joy through pursuing our dreams is a check our culture writes, but one it simply cannot cash. There is not sufficient funds in the bank. The world can't give us what it promises. Only by aligning ourselves with the universe's one and only sovereign king will we find life. That's the message of this book. you got to pick your king. Who's it going to be? The consequences are significant. Exodus reveals God as sovereignly in control and the sovereign king over the universe. Uh, two more, a little bit more quickly, only because they come in later chapters, but I need to introduce them here. Exodus reveals that God is, is, is holy. He is unimpeachably holy. Um, as he goes on, we'll actually see this starting next week in chapter 3, where Moses encounters a very well-known campfire. Hope you read ahead for next Sunday. Exodus reveals God to be a perfect being in whose presence sin cannot exist, which is a problem because this not only means that God is unimpeachably holy, it means that he is unapproachably holy because the best of us has sin. So we cannot be in the presence of this God. That point is made abundantly clear throughout this narrative. No one may see my face and live, he later tells Moses. This is God. He's unapproachably holy. And last but not least, there are other things we learn about God on the way, but these four seem to drive the narrative. God is a merciful pursuer of his people. We're going to see this repeatedly. He is a merciful, relational pursuer of his people. He wants to get to them. He wants to get them to him. He wants to be with them. God is a faithful covenant keeper. The end of chapter 2, we'll come back here in a second, but I'll just point out right now. Verses 23 to 25 of Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God. Great, so God's going to rescue them. If you know the story of Exodus, you know it's the story of God rescuing his people. Here's the question I have for us. According to these verses, why does God act? We know what he's going to do. Why does he do it? What does this passage tell us about God's motives? Verse 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Why does God save them? Because he is a merciful pursuer. Because he made a promise to and he's going to be faithful to keep that promise. That's what he's like. When you see God revealed in all of these ways, it's, this is like 
mind-stretching stuff. I've spent the better part of the last two weeks trying to wrap my head around it. And it's been good for my soul because my world has been pretty chaotic in a couple of days these last couple of weeks. And I've found myself in the car driving places and just putting on uh, hymns and, 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 and singing and just getting caught up in the unapproachably holy and mercifully wonderful sovereign king of the universe. It's ministered to my soul. Often when we think of who God is, we're very tempted, though, um, to kind of make ourselves a little bit into God's image. We probably, most people probably wouldn't say that, but we do it. I mean, this is, you know, maybe something like, like I know I'm not, I know I'm, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm not either. But, you know, overall, I'm really, I'm not that bad a guy. Like, I would never say that. But, I mean, I, I pay my taxes, I go to work, um, I'm nice to people. Um, I don't cheat on my wife. don't cheat on my husband. I'm nice to my kids most of the time <laughs> when they deserve it. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, okay, I'm not perfect, but like I'm, I'm probably, like if God was going to hang out with anybody, I'm probably the kind of person he'd be most comfortable with, right? I mean, I'm, nobody's going to say that, but deep down inside, like I see people making a mess of their lives and being totally godless, and that's not me. We kind of fashion ourselves into God's image a little bit because this idea of an unapproachably holy God is a little bit harsh. And so maybe we say, well, maybe he's more harsh for other people. And this can lead to a, um, a religion that has an outward form, but deep down inside, I never really repent of sin because I think I'm really following God pretty well. So it's tempting to kind of make ourselves into God's image a little bit more than we are. But you know what? Sometimes people make the exact opposite move. We make God into our image. That's a pretty dominant theme in Exodus too, fashioning of idols, making gods for ourselves. After all, who, who wants a God who's perfect all the time? Could you imagine being in relationship with somebody who's perfect all the time? I mean, that's exhausting. Frankly, it's more than exhausting. It's kind of harsh. It's way too demanding. How could you even be in relationship with somebody who's perfect all the time knowing that none of us are? It's like the, the blaring light of an interrogation spotlight just blasting at me all the time. I can't even open my eyes. It's, it's harsh. It's repellent. It's too demanding. Better to think of God as a chummy best friend. Jesus is just dying to snuggle up on the couch with you and have a cup of tea. A delightful Santa Clausy elf figure who gives us presents. Maybe even in some cases, maybe somebody who's who's still learning himself. I mean, God's God's probably smarter than us, but maybe God's still figuring things out too. And and so He's gracious with us when we are, and we're all just kind of doing this thing of life, messy as it is, together with God. It's far less black and white. It doesn't really demand much more of us than we can give. In short, it's an idol that we can relate to. So we need to make ourselves into God's image. Sometimes we're tempted to make God into our own image. But you know, there's one more tendency we have that still falls short of what God is telling us in his word. And it's people who make neither a mistake. We don't really mistake who God is. We see him fairly accurately. Nor do we sort of mistake who we are. Like, we know we don't measure up to a holy God. We get it. And as a result, we run like crazy from him. We're terrified of him. like the Israelites did at Mount Sinai when they saw the thunder and the smoke. We'll get there in chapter 20. And they did not want anything to do with that. And they said, no way, we're going up near that mountain. Moses, you go. <laughs> Thanks. 
you know what? That didn't work out well for them. God said, come, hear my voice. They're like, no, too scary. And they cringed away. You know, if your sense of guilt or shame or fear causes you to recoil from God, you don't yet have him right. You look at these last two in particular. The unapproachably holy God is the merciful pursuer. How in the blazes does that work? That's one of the great questions of the Old Testament. And it's introduced here in the book of Exodus. How does the unapproachably holy God, the God who is a consuming fire, how can he be a relationship seeker? Do you want to be in a relationship with a consuming fire? That sounds painful to me. That's exactly what the Bible poses for us. What do you do when the God of unapproachable light now approaches? How is this going to work? That leads us to our next point. We, we see a lot in this book about who God is, but we also learn a lot about what God is doing. Exodus is about God. Exodus is also about what God is doing. It's about the Bible's salvation story, the framework of the entire Bible. It is all unfolded in this second book. Exodus is about the Bible's salvation story. If you're still in chapter 1, let's pick up the narrative from verse 15. Uh, sorry, we read down through verse 15. Um, we'll end it at the end of this verse. So the, the, the Hebrew midwives, they saved these baby boys. Um, let's actually pick it up in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Once again, despite Pharaoh's specific effort to stamp them out, they continue through means that were beyond his control. To grow, And then because the midwives feared God, meaning not Pharaoh, he gave them families. They too were blessed. Then the Pharaoh commanded, now this verse sets up chapter 2, the Pharaoh commanded all his people, all right, the Hebrew midwives are outfoxing me. Forget them. I'm going to talk to my own people. They bow to me. He tells his own people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, drown those baby boys, but let every daughter live. If I stamp out the sons, then they cannot continue to procreate, especially in a paternalistic culture where family names are passed down through the boys. Now, we're not going to kill the women because we can use the women, right? They can be our servants and our slaves and probably have babies for us and all this wonderful kind of stuff. So this is basically Pharaoh saying, I'm going to take God's sons, meaning the sons of God's people, and wipe them out. I'm going to take God's daughters and use them for my purposes and for my people. That's my plan. See how that worked out. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. That woman conceived and bore a son. Here we go. We know what's supposed to happen to the sons. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Well, when she could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket made with bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She made a floating basket. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, <laughs> technically obeying the letter of Pharaoh's command. She put him in the river, but not the spirit of it. She didn't drown him. She put him in a floating basket. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman who took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. She's not confused. She's very clear-eyed about what's happening. But her response is a little different from her dad. Then his sister came and said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter says, Great idea. Modern paraphrase. The girl went and called the child's mother. I mean, as readers, we're just almost laughing at this point. 
He calls the child's mother to be a nursemaid to the child. And the Pharaoh's daughter said, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, adopted son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the river. Oh my word, what's going on here? Okay, cool story on its face. And the, and the face is part of the story, but there's even more than that. You see, this entire battle with the Hebrew babies and Pharaoh is highly significant if you've been reading the book of Genesis up until now. Genesis introduced the cosmic struggle between the seed of the woman Eve and the seed of the serpent Satan. That's the language of, of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We've talked about this before at our church. It's the first prophecy of a Messiah in the entire Bible in its third chapter where uh, God pronounces the curse for sin on Adam, the curse for sin on Eve, and then he finally pronounces the curse for sin on the serpent. And what he says to the serpent is, among other things, uh, I will put enmity, conflict, between your seed and the seed of the woman. There's going to be a descendant, and it says he, will, so it's going to be a male descendant of Eve, a human being, is going to crush your head, Satan. He's going to defeat you, but you will bruise his heel. He will be deeply wounded in the process. That simple prophecy sets up the cosmic conflict of the entire Bible. The seed of the woman, the Savior God is going to send, is going to be at war with Satan. Who is going to win? Now you fast forward that into the book of Exodus. As this Bible, as the story rages throughout the Bible, it is now seen here in history in these verses where Pharaoh, the serpent king, very deliberate imagery. You know, you've seen, if you've even seen the pictures of King Tut's tomb, the headdresses of the pharaohs were shaped to be like cobras. They often identified themselves as serpents. That imagery becomes really important in the Bible. Here's the serpent king battling the seed of the woman. It's right here in Exodus. This is a story about the cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And as he seeks to destroy God's seed, in other words, to massacre his male children, God rescues many of them through the courageous actions of these Hebrew midwives. And this, this kind of thing just goes on and on. I, I just want to point this out. This theme continues. You fast forward all the way to the time of Jesus when another king named Herod gave orders, because he was threatened by the birth of a Jewish king, to wipe out and massacre all the Hebrew boys below the age of two in and around the whole area of Judea. That's the time Jesus is born. But Mary and Joseph, his parents, save him because they're tipped off in a dream by an angel to get out of Dodge. And so they get out of Dodge and they, get, they take him where? Egypt. Interesting. Just like Jacob was brought to Egypt to protect God's people, so Jesus was sent to Egypt to be protected. And the gospel writers tell us when he came back, that was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea, out of Egypt I will call my son. This is the son, the Bible is saying, who is being saved just like Moses was from the serpent king. This is all going back to Genesis 3.15. You can even fast forward to the end of the Bible in Revelation 12, which depicts the same cosmic struggle as John, who is seeing this vision, describes a vision of seeing a massive dragon, a serpent, who is standing before a pregnant woman who's about to give birth for the express purpose of devouring the child, the male child, as soon as he's born. But in the vision, God saves both the child and the woman from the serpent beast. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Exodus provides the model that the rest of the Bible follows. 
Like all these themes of salvation and grace were introduced in Genesis, but they're just sort of hanging out there. Exodus grabs them and puts them into a plan, into a story. And from that moment on, the Bible will never alter that story. It will just continue to run in the rails laid down in the book of Exodus. Exodus gives the salvation narrative of Genesis a shape that the rest of the Bible follows. I'd summarize this point this way. Tim Keller says, um, and he's quoting Alec Mateer, who's an Old Testament scholar. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but Keller basically says, you know, an Old Testament Israelite who was alive at the end of, of the book of Exodus, so they've gone through the Red Sea and they've seen Mount Sinai, they've done it all. If, if you went to him and said, like, hey, who are you people? Like, where are you from? He'd probably say, oh, we were slaves. <laughs> we are the people who were, who were lost in our slavery. Uh, but... God saved us, uh, came and rescued us from that fate when, when we took shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb and God struck the Egyptians and part of the Red Sea and we were saved. And then he's leading us now through a difficult wilderness journey on our way to a glorious life in the promised land. That's, that's what the story of Exodus, that's what an Israelite in that case would say. And then Keller points out, a New Testament Christian can say almost the exact same things. Who am I? I was a person lost, stuck in the slavery of my sin, leading to death and suffering. Until God came along and saved me when I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, the slain Savior, Jesus Christ. And God is now leading me through a difficult journey of life right now on my way to heaven my promised land. You see, Exodus is the story of redemption, and the Bible never departs from it. We can't understand the message of Christianity unless we understand it in the terms that this book gives to it. But we learn a couple of other things about the salvation story of Exodus. First of all, that there's a, there's a mediator at the center of it. Uh, we already just read the story of the birth of Moses and how God preserved him, but this is about far more than Moses. Chapter 1 kind of gives us the big narrative, and then it just quickly zooms in on Moses. Like, this guy is going to play a central role. And what God is doing here is making it clear how salvation is going to work. It's going to come through a mediator, a person, a human being, who is going to serve as a link between God and the people that God will save. So yes, I'm going to save my people, but not directly. I'm going to do it through a human mediator. And so Moses becomes a a Messiah figure. Moses' own salvation is remarkable. The story's incredible. But there's a brilliant stroke of poetic justice in the story too. Did you notice that? As, as God, the way the narrative of Exodus is put together is just brilliant. I mean, we'll, I'll try to point this out as we go through, but just linguistically and artistically, it's gorgeous. This is one example. There is this brilliant stroke of poetic justice in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, where where God turns Pharaoh's own scheme against him. This is like theological judo. Like, you know, I'm going to use my, my opponent's momentum against him. Here comes Pharaoh. I'm going to kill all these babies directly through my people who will obey my command. He's in full power here, right? I'm going to kill the boys and I'm going to use the women. Use the girls. That's his, that's his plan. I'm going to kill God's sons and I'm going to use God's daughters for my own purpose. And what does God do? God turns his own scheme against him by using Pharaoh's own daughter to be the very instrument through which he saves the son that Pharaoh was trying to kill. 
That is beautiful. That is beautiful. It's as if God is saying, you want to use my daughters for your purposes? I'm going to use your daughter for my purposes. See who wins. Although notice how God uses the daughter of Pharaoh. He doesn't abuse her. He doesn't manipulate her. He doesn't uh, violate her in any way. She's clear-eyed. She's intelligent. She's smart. She knows what's going on, and she has a heart of compassion, and he moves in her heart. He takes her for who he is, and he providentially uses that to completely undermine the seemingly invincible authority of her own father, where she's like, I'm going to have compassion on this child. I'm sure she was totally unaware that God Almighty had anything to do with that. But in retrospect, we see God cannot be outsmarted. God's plan is to send a mediator who will build a bridge between his holy self and his unholy people. Lastly, Exodus is about the Bible salvation story and explaining how salvation works. Specifically, that it always starts with God's grace. Not our earning it, not our works, not our obedience. I asked this earlier at the end of chapter 2, why did God save Israel? Well, it certainly wasn't because they had obeyed him. They hadn't. I mean, they were just there. They were just living life. They just became slaves. There was no law given at this point for them to even obey. God saves them, not because they were obedient, and not because they were just a morally superior people. You know, the Egyptians are bad. Oh, the Israelites are so good. That is so clearly not the case in the book of Exodus. As a Jewish book about a Jewish people, it's pretty unflattering about the ancient Israelites. It's very honest about the fact that they were not morally superior to the Egyptians or anybody else. God did not, did not choose them and save them because they deserved it, or because they were better He did it for one reason and one reason only, because he made a promise to do so. Because he chose, in other words, grace. Grace. This is salvation by grace at the very heart of the Old Testament. God doesn't give his people the law, then wait for their obedience, and if they obey it, he says, okay, now I'll save you because you guys did a better job than everybody else. That's not how this works. The entire story, the entire narrative of Exodus shows that God saves them. That's the first third of the book. And then he leads them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai where he finally gives them the law and tells them to obey him in light of the fact that he's already saved them. He's already entered into a covenant relationship with them, not on the basis of their obedience, on the basis of his loving, pursuing mercy. It is not law, obedience, and salvation. It's exactly the opposite. Salvation followed by law which then results in obedience. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because God has already saved us. This is a pattern the rest of the Bible picks up and never alters. And those who think the Old Testament is full of laws and rules and regulations and to-dos and the New Testament preaches a different message about salvation and grace just haven't read Exodus. They haven't let it speak. It's right here telling us, here's how salvation is going to work. It's a story of grace. Friends, this is utterly unique among world religions totally unique. As different as various religious systems are, every other religion can be understood as a way for us to get to God or the gods or whatever the vision of utopia or the good is. While Christianity has a fundamentally different kind of message, It's alone in that it isn't fundamentally about what we are supposed to do. It is fundamentally about what God has already done. 
That's what it is. This is grace. Which means on the one hand that nobody is good enough to get to God, and on the other hand, nobody's bad enough to be outside of salvation. This is incredible. Think about it, right? No, those of us that are tempted to kind of say, oh, deep down inside, I'm really a good guy. No, I'm not. I face the God who is a consuming fire, and like if I really saw my sin, I think I would completely implode because my identity is built on me being an okay guy, and I'm not okay. <laughs> I cannot stand here as a Christian and say I'm confident that I will be with Jesus in heaven when I die, which I am, because I'm a good guy. No, it is not about what I have done. The message of Christianity utterly undermines our self-reliance. It isn't enough to be a vaguely spiritual person who works hard, doesn't cheat, treats people nicely, even goes to church, sings songs, cares for their family and their friends, pays their taxes. Exodus doesn't get let us get away with thinking that any of that really matters. If your deepest sense of peace with God comes because you really think you're a pretty okay person on the whole, Exodus will show you the depth of your need and refocus you on who God is and what he's done, not who you are and what you have done. It utterly undercuts human pride. At the same time, the opposite is also true. It means that nobody's too far gone. Praise God. There are people over the 13 years that I've been in ministry at this church who have sat in these pews and been here because a family member drugged them in or whatever, and they're like so done on religion and so guilted out from other religious experiences that they've had that deep down inside they're utterly convinced religion and Jesus may work for other people, but not for me. And it's like all I can do to just like, I wish I had the power to just grab their hearts and shake them and say, are you reading the Bible? I know what you feel, but it is not right. Exodus will undercut that for you. We're going to see just how little the Israelites deserved God's salvation in Exodus, and we're going to see it repeatedly. Don't believe you're too far gone, too bad or too spoiled for God because of what you've done or what has been done to you. The way salvation works, grace first, means that nobody is outside the realm of salvation. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I'll just end with this. Exodus is ultimately about God. It's ultimately about his salvation story. And just lastly, Exodus is about our response to God. The Hebrew midwives in chapter 1, verse 17, are just a beautiful summary of the response God calls for. They obey God rather than man because they fear God even more than they fear the Pharaoh who had the ability to take their lives, but they decided it was worth losing their lives, so be it, if they could be aligned with God. That's trust. That's what the Bible calls faith. That's the response that is regularly called for. We see not only those midwives, but Moses over the next few chapters are going to be regularly sent into the presence of Pharaoh who could just have him killed. And that's like, oh, I don't want to go stand before that guy. Go. And they just have to go and trust God. The Israelites are told to put the blood of the Passover lamb in chapter 12 over their houses. And they're like, okay, they're either going to do it or they're not. The parted Red Sea, walk down into it. What if that thing collapses on me? God just says, go. Ah, I've just got to choose to trust him or not. They're going to be plodding through a wasteland with no food and water. And God says, will you trust me to take care of you and lead you to the promised land? Go. And they're either going to trust him or not. We're going to approach the thundering, smoking, flaming presence of God on Mount Zion. He's going to say, come up and listen to my voice. And they're either going to trust him or they're not. So often in the story, their answer is not. But the call is always the same. Trust me. That's your, that's your response.
God is the God who accomplishes their salvation. Their part is to just go all in on God. To bank everything, even life itself, on who he is and what he's promised to do. Because, friends, responding to who God is as he has revealed himself is the doorway to life. We have a chance to respond to that right now by coming to the communion table, something we do our custom twice a month here at Harvest. And so as the ushers go get ready for that, I want to invite our music team to come back up here and get ready to lead us in just a moment. I'm so glad we happen to be launching the series on a communion Sunday because communion represents the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself told us to do this as his people. It's a very simple act with a very specific and profound message. It's simply eating a piece of bread and drinking from a cup. But when we do this together in remembrance of Jesus, we're actually making a declaration, the Bible says. It's proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so to participate in communion is to say, I'm a Christian, (laughs) It's to say, Jesus Christ has died for my sins. I have repented of my sins and I'm trusting Jesus Christ alone for ultimate salvation. And what that means is that if you've not made a decision to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're here with us this morning, we are delighted that you're here. And we want to encourage you as the communion elements are distributed, which they will be in just a minute, you can just let them pass by and not partake of it. Because to partake of communion is to say, I'm I'm trusting the blood of Jesus. And it's also to say that we are one body together. It unites us as a church. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, because there is one bread, we who eat of it are one body because there is one bread. In the act of communion, we are constituting ourselves as a church, not just individuals, but a family, just like the ancient Israelites, who are defined by the fact that Jesus Christ saved us by grace. And so while the ushers come forward and get ready to distribute the elements, Um, Let me just encourage you. There's just going to be some music playing um, softly. Why don't you guys go ahead and come forward. Um, There's going to be some music playing softly while the bread is distributed. We'll start that in a moment just when I pray. And that's just a time for you to reflect for a moment. That's why we create that space in the worship service here while the bread is being passed. It's a time for you to reflect maybe on what you've heard, to pray silently where you're at. Maybe reflect on who God is, unapproachably holy, merciful Savior. Sovereign King in control. How does that relate to you? Reflect on his plan of salvation. And then I'll come up and lead us in taking the bread together. So please hold on to those elements till all have received. God, we come to your presence this morning, grateful beyond what I can put into words that we can celebrate communion because of what it means. It means that you died to save us. It means that we have a hope. It means that we have a future no matter what's happening now because you are our sovereign king and your blood shed for us on the cross has paid the penalty for our sins. And so God, we come as a a family to commemorate that now. In this quiet moment, would you lead each one of our hearts to where we need to be, to be ready to fully appreciate what we're about to do. And then in just a moment, as we begin singing together with one voice before we drink the cup, would you receive the worship of a grateful people? In Christ's name, amen.